I'm Eric Tornberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with James Courier. James has been a prominent founder and investor. He's one of the earliest to build social networks, starting Tickle in 1999 and then selling it in 2004. He's since advised and invested in a bunch of startups, including Goodreads, HoneyBook, most recently Meerkat, among others, and most recently started NFX Guild, which is an invite-only accelerator program for networks affects businesses. James has been a mentor and recently a friend, and he's one of the smartest guys I've met in Silicon Valley. In this episode, we discuss what James looks for in founders, common advice he finds himself giving, concept of personal brand, his involvement in Goodreads, Meerkat, and a lot more. All right, here's James. You just started NFX, which is a networks and marketplace incubator? That's right. So it's it's not an incubator, it's it's a guild. Essentially, we're creating a group of companies that just focus on networks and marketplaces because what it takes to build those things are very discrete sort of psychological approaches and design approaches to make those things work. You know, whenever I go to conferences, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll announce that, hey, we're getting together a bunch of marketplace CEOs. And the guys are just, the, the, the men and women are just desperate to get together for dinner. They'll, they'll push everything off their schedule to come to a dinner to meet up with other marketplace CEOs because the specific problems and challenges you have running a marketplace or a network are very distinct. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking to someone in enterprise or in hardware or in security, or it's just there's nothing really to share. You're in different worlds, and so getting people together who are focused on these problems uh, and and having them share their own stories, their own mistakes, like like we like you and I have yeah. been sharing about you know how we try to manage Tickle back in the day yeah. with multiple verticals, and and you doing the same here at Product Hunt. Yeah. I think you know it, it's incredibly valuable. It'll save you years of right. struggle. To, to get that insight, like, oh, he figured that out, and made that mistake, and then he realized, oh, I should have done that. So getting those people together and having a guild around that, and, and you know, I say guild because, you know, a lot of these companies are later stage. Uh, we've got a bunch of post-A companies. People, some people have raised over $20 million who have now joined the guild because they want to transform their business. They want to take their business in a whole different trajectory, mm-hmm. and they want to dig in on the core product. Uh, and that's what we do. We dig in on the core product and we reconfigure the core product, the core language, the core flows, and really take a look at everything. Um, it's not, uh, some people have likened it to an accelerator and because it's time-based, it is. And because we say, look, we invest 120,000 and we get 7% for pre-seed, we invest 120,000 for 5% of post-seed, which is about after 650,000 you've raised, or we get 2% of post-day. People say, oh, it's like an accelerator. I'm like, yeah, yeah it's, it's like an accelerator in the sense that there's sort of a rate card, if you will. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's very different in the sense it's very focused on these types of companies. And, you know, a lot of the, the team, and one team has 175 people and 50 million in revenue. So right. it's, it's it's sort of a different, different is, is there something about an accelerator that you don't want to be? Like something that accelerators do? Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, if you talk to people who've been through accelerators, most of them will tell you that they freaking loved it and they'd do it again and they'd recommend it to a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that calendar-based programs focuses everyone and gets us all behaving as best as we can. I think that it's a really good idea in general. Mm-hmm. I think we're just emphasizing sort of core product and growth and core strategy and growth rather than raising money. Got it. Anybody we're bringing on, they can raise as much money as they want. That's not the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. 
And is this work that you'd been doing for a long time in just kind of a different format or, or not so formally or officially? That's right. So yeah. since we sold our first company in 2004, I've been you know, angel investing and then advising and working on core product and strategy with companies like Goodreads or yep. you know, companies like that. And more recently, companies like Meerkat or HoneyBook or yeah. folks like that. And, and in the last few years, I haven't been a CEO for the first time uh, in, in 15 years. And so I've been able to get in my car and I drive to people's offices yeah. and, and we sit down and we whiteboard and, and they bring in their whole team and we sort of think through, you know, what's going on, you know, look at benchmark data that we've got on all the other companies and all the other attempts people are, are trying. Yeah. And, and we can really speed up development really quickly or help them prioritize what they're working on. Yeah. Um, and so I've been doing that for two, three years now. Uh, and now it's formalizing that. And what are the benefits of formalizing it? Uh, number one, it gets the whole team to focus on yep. a certain period of time where they're going to transform the business. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a wake-up call that the CEO can give to everyone saying, look guys, we've got a timeline and we're going to be in this process and we're going to get a lot of new information and you need to open your minds to doing things differently. That is such an important thing that no one thinks about. Right. When you agree to a program, when you agree to join a guild, you're saying to yourself, I'm willing to open up and look at things differently. And that's half the battle. Yeah. Because we get we get stuck in our own ruts, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, by formalizing and bringing a group together, you're going to make friends with these other nine or ten companies that could last for decades, where you're going to give each other KPIs that you won't give anyone else because you're going to be in a cone of silence. Yeah. And if someone can tell you, hey, you know, my click-through rate on that notification on iOS is 7%, and you're only getting 2%, you know you're doing something wrong and you know to focus on it. Right. Without knowing that, you might not know what to focus on and it could save you months and months of time. And by getting people to get into a community where they can share that information and they're all doing similar things but non-competitive things, it's gonna open up a world of insight to yeah. to each of the companies that's gonna you know, make, make them go forward much faster. So YC obviously is the most famous of, of these types of, you know, YC is an accelerator, but maybe they could also have some elements of a guilt. Like it's it's community over a long period of time. You know, big uh, alumni, kind of big culture history around it. Mm-hmm. What are some things that that you think you you take from that model? What are some things you think that you do fundamentally differently? That uh, you know, what do you think about that as you build your community? And so, in terms of what we do differently, we're we're just focused on networks and marketplaces. Yeah. That's the main thing. Um, the second thing we do differently is that we work with a lot of post-A companies and post-C companies. So companies that come out of Y Combinator can then come and join and work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of later stage stuff. Um, although we do do pre-C as well. We've got some teams with just three people. Um, but um, And then in terms of... Uh, and, and the other thing that we're doing is we're really capturing a ton of uh, information about how each of these features tactically works. Right? So if you're going to integrate with Facebook Messenger, how do you do that? What's the playbook for doing yeah. that the best way? We have that information. We just give you the playbook for how you do it at every, you know, and it changes, but we have the update at any yep. given time. So having those sorts of resources available is, is important. What we, what we keep is the calendar-based. What we keep is sort of the fixed amount of money for the fixed amount of equity. What we keep is having a great group of mentors around the companies. Um, and we take the same idea of having a class or an alumni network and sort of take that to the next level. So if you look at colleges, colleges do a good job of this. But the company, the, the college that does the best job of it is Princeton. 
they really have a cult building sort of you know infrastructure in place that serves them well. And what do they do differently? They do think from day one they're thinking about how to get you to <laughs> to bond with your classmates, to relate to the experience you're having there. Uh, you don't walk through this gate until you graduate. You don't do this. You do that. You know, there's lots of little social elements that Princeton does, including reunions, which takes place before you graduate. So before you graduate, you know what it looks like to uh, to see your life go before you because they have this thing called the P rate. And all the classes of all the alumni line up along a three-mile route or two-mile route. And the oldest people start first, and they walk down the middle, and everyone cheers them. And you're standing on the side of the road as a 21-year-old graduate, and you see someone who's 93 walking two miles and waving to the crowd, and you see yourself as a 93-year-old. And then you see the 92-year-olds and the 91-year-olds, and this goes on for a couple hours. Wow. And then you see the class that you knew that graduated last year. They're all in New York and in San Francisco, and they've got their jobs, and they got their new girlfriends and their new lives you don't know anything about. And you see them walk by, <laughs> you know, and they drink a beer to you or whatever. And then it's your turn, and then you step onto the road, and then you walk out. So you do that before you graduate, and you realize, I've just seen my whole life go before my <laughs> eyes. I can now see the shadow of the future for everything I'm about to be. Yeah, anything I can hope to be—a healthy ninety-three-year-old walking two miles and chugging a beer at the end of the, you know—and uh, this sort of thing. And there's tens of these elements that Princeton has built over the years, and we're very interested in the same sorts of stuff. Not that we want joiners, because the best companies are built by tigers, built by you know killers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have co-working space. We we don't you know like Y Combinator. We don't want co-working space. A lot of these accelerators think that that's a good idea. We think it's a bad idea. We think that it it drains energy from these companies. It keeps them from developing their own character, their own personality. Uh, but you know we don't we don't we want the killers. But the killers also know that other killers can help them. Yeah. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking to give people a space where you know the killers can get together in a guild and go crush it together. So. Talk a little bit about uh, the the killer personality. Yeah, um, is it someone you'd want to be best friends with? You know, what what do you talk more about this killer? There there are two types of killers. I think there are some killers you don't want to be best friends with that you just admire them from afar and say, wow, they really kicked ass at business, and they're kind of rough around the edges. They have high disagreeability factor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is fine. Uh, it doesn't mean they're evil or wrong. It just means that they're they're sort of disagreeable, and and that gives them an advantage. In, in a lot of uh, situations. Um, and then there's a, a killer who has got a little bit more emotional intelligence and a little bit better interface to people and isn't as disagreeable, but never lets go and gets what they want and is, 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 uh, is self-realized to the point that they are just going to intend something into being. And um, I've got uh, a good friend of mine, Sargur at CRV, and he talked to me about this 10 years ago. He said, you know, in Israel there's an idea that if you focus hard enough on something, if you intend enough for something, that it manifests in the world. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I've come to believe that, that there are certain people who have a greater power, a little bit like Anakin Skywalker or Obi-Wan Kenobi. They're just stronger with the Force, and they can intend, they can just squint if they squint for two years, something will manifest in the world around them. And it, those, those are the people that are the killers. And so, the, you know, these are like rituals or traditions. As you build your, your community, which, uh, which do you think you'll implement in NFX? 
We don't know all of them. Um, they're going to evolve. I mean, any community, any any group evolves their traditions. But um, you know, we are working with uh, a group out of Israel that works with the Israeli military to bond them together, and we're flying them in, and they're going to be running our first day and our middle day and our and our last day sort of event yeah. to to help us bond together and and you know come out of our shells and you know look we uh, we look at this as a personal journey as well. So. I think that some people who look at advising startups, they look at them like mechanical things, like an engineer would, which is fine, but they're to be fixed. I don't look at it that way. I look at the psychology of the people involved. I look at the personalities of the people involved, and I realize that those individuals have to go on their own personal journey, just as their company has to go on its own journey. Right? So there's, there's going to be corporate transformation through the process of being part of NFX. Um, and that's what we want. That's the eventual goal. That's the measured goal. But I think that happens best when the people running the company go through their own personal journeys as well. They've got to come to their own understanding about who they are, what they're doing, and why they're doing it, and how they communicate with others, and how they manifest things in the world. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're there to support that journey as well. And I think if you talk to companies like Poshmark with Manish Chandra, or Raj Kapoor at FitMob, or... Um, you know, Ozlan over at HoneyBook, they will tell you that when I work with them, it's not just about the product, it's not just about the strategy, which is what we spend our most time talking about, but we come from a place of discussing where are they in the process? Mm-hmm. Who are they being in the process? What's the opportunity for them in the next step of being that CEO, of being that world changer, of being that killer? And that, I think, opens up a whole world of opportunity for these companies as well as for the people who are running them. So it's not just about the corporate transformation, it's also about personal transformation. It's interesting because you, you've taken a few companies and we'll, we'll get to them specifics in a bit, uh, but you've taken a few companies and, and you've worked with them and, and you've made significant improvements to them. What, and you've played a major role, what do you think it is about your skill set uh, that makes you kind of uniquely valuable as a and, and don't be modest here as like as an advisor and investor yeah. what, what's your what's what are you best at yeah I think the thing I'm best at is understanding like I just said that the psychology of the, of, the, mm-hmm. of the CEO and the team and how they're all interrelating to each other because that's so critical if you can't get past that interpersonal stuff you can't get to the product and if you can't get to the product you can't get to the strategy yeah. so you first got to deal with the sort of human elements and I think I clear I, I create a, a place where you can clear that out of the way Either that person needs to leave or the relationship needs to change in some way. And once we get that out of the way, then we can work on it. Then we get to the product stuff. And, you know, I've built tens of products over the last 20 years, right? I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I've, I built my first social network in 1991. <laughs> it was called Talent Scout. And we built it on AT&T's private broadband network before TCPIP was broadly deployed. Right. And so I've been, you know, it, it was the same freaking thing as all the social networks today. The big picture in the upper left and then the data here and you hit the play button on the video. And it was way premature and it didn't go anywhere. But the products are essentially the same. And that's 24 years ago. So I've been working with these types of products, these network effect products for you know decades. So I've made a lot of mistakes. And so I have a lot of stories that I can tell, look, I made this mistake and this is why it didn't work. You're about to make the same mistake as far as I can tell. And you, you know, and so maybe you shouldn't go that way. Or I can say, look, we tried these eight things and this was the only one that worked. And you know, you've got four things in front of you. Why don't we try the thing that worked for me first and then see if it works? It might not because it's now 2015 or 16. It's a different world. But 
you're increasing your probability at every step of making something really change in your business. Um, and then when you look at strategy, I think, you know, I was a venture guy for five years. So I just spent, you know, every year I'd look at six or 800 companies and talk to the CEOs for hours about their strategy. and about. So I've, I've got this, and, and I've been investing now for, for 10 years. And, and so I see a lot of strategic decisions and I see which strategies work and which patterns work and which ones don't. And, um, you know, it's always changing. Things are always new, but I think you can take a list of options in terms of what to do next from a strategy perspective, and you can cross off about 50% of them. And then so you're just doubling your probability of getting something to work right away. Uh, were you a venture guy after 2004, after your first sale? Um, I was an angel investor after the first sale. Got The venture so, guy was yeah, before we, that? Yeah, yeah, I was a venture guy in the 90s. And you didn't want to get back into it? Almost did. Almost took a general partner role in 99 but couldn't get the idea of tickle out of my head. Got my it. head was exploding. I couldn't sleep because I kept thinking about it. And that's when I suggest people start a company. Interesting. And even after the sale of Tickle, you know, one of these more kind of, you know, I'm sure the prestigious VC firms are knocking on your door. You just prefer to be on the angel side or? Yeah, I think that, um, I think the, the, the way venture capital works is, uh, you know, you typically take board seat. Uh, and I find that if when I was a CEO and the CEOs I work with, I think it's tough. I think the relationship with the board member is a little more distant. It needs to be because they're the ones who are going to help you raise the next round. And they're the ones that are going to help you recruit your VPs. Uh, they have to be 100% on board. So for you to really let down your hair with them is a very dangerous thing because sometimes they'll respond well, but oftentimes they won't. They can't because they get panicked about the state of your challenges that you're right. facing. So there's a, a little bit of a distance that you have to maintain with your board members because there's a legal fiduciary responsibility. I prefer the advisor relationship where I'm not on the board, where I can get to know the VPs and the directors <clears throat> and work with them to help the whole thing work. And there's 100% trust and there's 100% transparency. And if you're getting a divorce, we, we can talk right. about that because that actually impacts your decision about whether to sell the company or raise another round. I mean. It's all tied together. And so right. from that perspective, from being that, having that relationship is something I prefer much better. What do you look for when you're evaluating, is this CEO a killer that I want to work with? Um, they've tend to thought thing, they, they've thought things through at a very deep level. So I'll ask them questions and they'll say, yeah, I thought about that and here was my conclusion. And even if I disagree, I will almost always agree with them if they feel like they've thought it through and they've made a hard decision. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. making those hard decisions and saying, "Look, we're not doing that right now. We're going to do we're going to we're, we're going to do something else." And I believe in that. And when the data comes back that that's not working, then we'll make our decision. But right now, this is the direction. Let's go. And I had a, a great mentor who told me one time. He said, "There are 13 ways of doing something. 11 of them will work. Just pick one and do it full on." And uh, that's what a killer does is they pick one and fall out. The second thing that a killer does is they, uh, they gather resources to them really quickly. So when they've got an idea, they'll attract talent to them to go figure out if the idea works. Mm -hmm. And once they've got a platform in place, they will attract or push their way into resources so they can get the product market fit. And once they get product market fit, boom, the money, boom, the people, boom, the office. They just draw those resources to them. That's what a killer does. Right. And a lot of people find product market fit and then they kind of act as if they're still looking for product market fit and they're dilly-dallying. 
they're not they're not really going and grabbing it. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't recognize how lucky they are to have found a product market fit because it's so difficult. And then they you need to have that extra gear as a killer. It's, what, what what does it look like to grab it? Or, what it looks like is that uh, first you go get the money. You get a ton of money. You kind of overfund things typically. Number two, you go and uh, develop just massive you know recruiting efforts where you're attracting the very best talent that, that is available, period. Um, and then the third thing it looks like is you are iterating rapidly on the product to get all the data back and that your data systems become the core of what you're doing. And that you're, you yourself as the CEO, as the killer, are looking at the data along with your team. Mm-hmm. And you're not just letting them make decisions about that. Those three things are the main things you look at. Okay. And let's talk about some stories going first with, with Goodreads. Yeah. Um, tell us about your time working with, with Goodreads. So Otis uh, Chandler, who's the CEO of Goodreads, came out of Stanford as a Mechie and had never coded before. But I met him through a friend, and we hired him on in 2000. And uh, we gave him the Java coding book. And he went off to the corner for three months, read the book. And he came. He wandered out three months later and said, I think I'm ready to code. <laughs> we said, great. And so we stuck him on the line, and uh, he worked for Stan Chodnovsky, who's my business partner at NFX. And uh, he got better and better, and he was just the most reserved, quiet, interesting guy. Um, and... After about five years, he came to us and said, you know, I have an idea. I'd like to build a network around book readers. And we said, well, we love networks. We love network effect businesses. Uh, we're in. And so I gave him his first 100 grand to get going. It was actually 105 for some reason. <laughs> and, um, and then we brought in uh, John Callahan from True, who also gave him 100, I think. And Stan put in 20. And, and off he went. And then um, Stan went on the board. And... We just worked with him to help him, you know, continually hone the product. And as the distribution mechanisms, the viral mechanisms changed over the next seven years, the product and his approach had to change all the time. And it's like flying a plane. You've got to constantly be adjusting. And so we just helped him do that um, and, you know, kept the viral factor around 0.4 most of the time. And it just steadily grew. It never really hit an inflection point where it grew geometrically, like most of the stuff we do. It literally just had a linear growth path over seven years. And uh, he was always checking in with us saying, should I sell because people were kept trying to buy him? Should I you know, move to LA? Should I move back to San Francisco? You know, he was always making these big decisions and eventually we got him back to San Francisco, which was really sort of the key. Mm-hmm. And then he was able to build up his team. And uh, there was a big article in, in the New York Times about how Goodreads was now taking over the brand of books in the United States, and that became an existential threat to Amazon, who at the core of their brand is, is books still, you know, right. 20 years later. Uh, and so they were willing to pay anything to get hold of Goodreads. And that whole negotiation was all, you could write a whole New York Times article about that. It was, it was wild, but it was fun. Interesting. Is there anything you could say about it? or um, Just that... It, it reiterated to us that when you build a network effect business, uh, it's nearly impossible to replicate by even the biggest of competitors. And the value of your business uh, grows geometrically as your network grows. Right. Because they just, they, there's no way to compete with a network. There's no way to compete with the marketplace once it's been established, which is why that's all we focus on is the, the value of these companies just explodes. Uh, it's interesting. 
this concept of once you're associated with with book Goodreads and books, for example, yeah. you think about you know product hunt and maybe apps. You know, product hunt still you know a year old and still got a long way to go. Mm. But it's interesting when you own a you know a brand and in some ways that product hunt has the potential to do yeah. what the what the opportunity is That's right. because of that. That's right. That's right. Because owning owning the idea of something is everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. Perception sometimes is you know is reality. Yeah, that's right. Owning the idea of something, and, and I, I you know I anticipated that Amazon would really want to buy Goodreads. I mean, they always were trying to buy them. Every year they would talk to them, and they never offered enough. So we knew that that was on the table. What I had failed to understand is that. Amazon's brand is built on books and then on next and next and next and Amazon Web Service and it's, it's built on concentric circles. And if you were to take out the core of books, the whole thing was then threatened. Right. And I hadn't realized how existential a little Goodreads company could be. And it really, really became important to Amazon. When you talk to founders and founders, you know, get acquisition offers or they think about their number, so to speak. What, what's advice to the founders that you give there? How, sh- how should they think about you know, acquisition or do the calculus around that? I go back to their own personal situation. So if they're tired, and so a lot of founders are just exhausted, they haven't slept for two years, they're, you know, their marriage is on the rocks or whatever, they're becoming alcoholics. I mean, <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, it's hard. This is our job. And uh, uh, in that case, then you say, look, if you can sustain this without getting acquired, then keep going, man, because you very rarely get these opportunities to build these businesses. It's so hard to get product market fit. Uh, keep going. But if you can, if you're just wiped out, then you should get out. Draw a line in the sand, you know, get your money in the bank, create yourself at a certain level, and then start inventing what's next. So I usually start with them as people. And then if I bucket them and the, they're exhausted and they need to get out, then yeah, move toward the acquisition. Most of them aren't. Most of them are like, no, dude, I'm invigorated by this. You know, this is this. We're finally, we're finally working. That's why they're trying to buy it. And that's sort of 85% of people, and or 90% of people. And in that case, then, you know, you you start to look at, well, you know, you're going to have this opportunity. Are you going to have this opportunity a year from now? Are you going to have it two years from now? Five years from now? Are you going to expand the number of potential acquirers? Are you ever going to get into a position where you could go public? You know, and do you want to go public? So there's a whole decision tree that, that sort of flows at any given time. And I look at these acquisition offers or these, these discussions as option value. And at any given time, you're going to have some option value. In general, I guess I have to agree with the folks that say that the M&A people tend to waste your time as a CEO with a small team you know, trying to do everything. Uh, most CEOs overestimate the probability of getting acquired once those discussions t- start taking place. I would say 95% of them overestimate. They're not cynical enough to th- realize that these M&A guys' job is just to add conversations to their month, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and even when CEOs come to you and say, you know, I'm really interested in your company, that's not always a sign of, of real interest. It's just they're trying to figure out if there should be any interest. And so if an M&A guy at a major tech company you know, wants to meet with, with a startup, do you, do you say always take it? Do you say it depends? I say it depends. Got I it. say it depends. And I tend to say don't, don't do it. Got it. You know, wait till the operational guy comes to you and says, I need this for my business because she or he is the yeah. one that's going to drive the acquisition. 
or until the CEO calls you on the phone. But if, what if it's the head of corp dev at Facebook or Google or Microsoft and I want to get breakfast with you? I, I, I tend to think that's a waste of time. Yeah. I tend to think. It's not always a waste of time. And those are great people. Right? Right, I mean, right. These are really talented yeah. people and really great companies. It's just their role is, their role is like a venture guy. Yep. You know, I was as an associate of Battery Ventures in the 90s, and we would call up these CEOs, and they would react like, oh, Battery Ventures, the venture firm is calling me. But it was really just a 26-year-old guy. My position in the firm was not, you know, right. I didn't have the capacity to invest $15 million in this company, but he didn't know that, and he overestimated it. Or she would overestimate the, the possibility that I was going to invest. And so yeah. they would give me more information probably than they should. And, and, and I think the same thing is true with m and the people right. overestimate, you know, they get a meeting with a venture person, the venture person says, oh, this is so much fun, I look forward to following up. They walk out of that meeting overestimating the probability that that venture firm is going to invest in them. And yeah. so, so I, I kind of have to put a little, you know, sort of, you know, water on the fire of the excitement, right. uh, typically, and give them a perspective about the real numbers. You yeah. know, you're going to talk to 20 before one does it, so don't get that. Mm-hmm. tied up in this because as soon as you as a CEO start thinking oh I could sell for 100 million and I'm going to have you know 25 million dollars in the bank and I'm going to be so cool as soon as your emotions start going there it's hard to reverse thrusters you know it's hard right. to, to back out of that I've seen the same thing with fundraising once they think they're going to get money and then the venture guy backs out then they take the next best deal right that, that, that comes along even if it's at a much lower valuation even if it's a much worse venture firm because they got in the mindset that they wanted to raise money now. And so you have to always be yeah. cautious. Do you work with some uh, CEOs and companies that are pre-product market fit? Absolutely. Most of them. Interesting. Most of them, including the post-A companies. That are <laughs> they're, they're pre-product market fit. That's what we do. Uh, so you get them to product market. Yeah. What are some of the key tenets or core principles that you're you know, telling these, these founders to get to product um, market fit? One of the main things is, is start with language. Start with language and start with the psychology of the user. People have, people's brains are literally structured by the language we use. And in English, it's English words. And people have certain things that they want, you know, get a job. I want to get a job. That's, that's what the words in their, their voices are saying. Their voices in their heads are saying, get a job. Okay. So when they see the words, get a job, they're like, oh, sweet. I think I want that. And I click. So you have to find the things that people already want. Uh, and um, and that starts with language, and and then from from there you look at the psychology and say, well, why are they wanting that thing, and how do I give them more of what they want, and uh, and and that's typically when you find the product market fit, and you don't know what the answer is, but you you create sort of a semantic web, you create all the words that you could be using, and then once you find the words you want to use, then you build the product around the words. Yeah. And it's usually the opposite. Most people, most of us, and when I started my first companies, I, I made this mistake. I said, well, I want to build stuff. I want to build something that does something for somebody. But really what you have to do is you have to find the language that relates you to somebody and then build that thing that they want out of that relationship with you. It's, it's, it's reversing the process. And I didn't figure that out for about three or four years into being a CEO. Interesting. Oh, and the last thing you asked me, so what are the main tenets? So, so it's language and it's psychology. Um, and we work a lot on that. And, you know, Tickle was the largest psychology testing site in the, in the mm-hmm. world. I mean, it was the largest psychology testing company in the world um, for, for seven years. So, you know, that's sort of our background. The other thing that, that I really work on with people is 
maintaining a mindset where you don't know. It's okay not to know. And I know that you just went and raised six million bucks and you had to convince a bunch of people that you did know. But at night in bed, <laughs> on the toilet, and yeah. in your office with your team, you don't know. And that's okay. You have to maintain that, that sense of not knowing. Um, and, of not, and of knowing it's not quite right yet. And, and that's okay. That's okay to live there uh, in, that, in that mind space because you're looking for a thousand percent improvement at all times. So most people come to me and they're like, hey, could you get me to grow or could you help me? I'm like, no, like you're not looking for 100% improvement or 20% improvement. You're looking for 1,000% improvement because right now you've got nothing or you've got something, but it's just not that big. Let's make it huge. Like how do you, it's easier to run a big company than it is a little company because right. it's easier to hire. It's easier to raise money. It's easier to get press. It's easier to, to attract customers. It's actually easier to run a big company. So let's do something huge together. Right. So, so that's what I work with people on, is, is trying to get them to understand, I'm looking for a thousand percent improvement. And even though I've raised 20 million, I'm still looking for a thousand percent improvement. I can still you know, change the whole concept of the business in such a way that um, you know, it becomes something you know, a thousand percent bigger. Yeah, let's take another story. Let's take, uh, let's take Meerkat. Yeah. So we, we really became friends of South by this year where I mean, it was just insane. Meerkat, you know, it was just everywhere. It was blowing up. Um, it was an incredible story. But you'd been working with them for, for a while. Yeah, about a year. Uh, so tell us the story of, of how that happened. So last year I spent a bunch of time in Europe. And because I was near Israel, I was spending some time in Israel. And uh, it's a great place. Tel Aviv is really number two in terms of tech ecosystem to, to San Francisco, in my opinion, uh, from what I've seen. And I met with, I don't know, about 60 companies while I was there and just met with them and gave them what advice I could. And, you know, there were different venture firms and different incubators and accelerators that sort of introduced me to their to their portfolios. And I would work with them. And a guy named Aiden Shochat uh, from, I'm not pronouncing his name properly, but from Aleph introduced me to a bunch of companies. And one of them was this guy, it was Yevo, Y-E-V-V-O, and the guy running it was Ben Rubin. And uh, he was a very compelling guy, like many of the people I met. But he was doing something I found to be really interesting, which was this peer-to-peer -peer video on mobile thing. And they had had some success with their first app, which had gotten about 400,000 downloads, but it stopped working. The retention wasn't there. So it, it had gotten viral, but the retention wasn't there. Well, had, what was the app and why wasn't it working? It was called Yevo, and it was an app for people to stream live video to each other. Did it look like Meerkat? It didn't look like Meerkat, but it did the core functionality okay. of Meerkat, which was just I press a button and I can live stream to anybody who's following me and everybody who wants to tune in. And I can see who's tuning in, I can chat with them. Yeah. It did all that same stuff. But there was a lot more to it, number one. Number two, the messaging uh, when people were on and when they were was sort of unfettered. It was just a big spam show. There was there were not real names. There was there was a lot of elements of the product which just didn't work, and they had seen that it didn't work. Meaning, it started to go. They thought they were there, and then it died. Right. Uh, which is true for a lot of products. You know, uh, we had that over branch out where it grew to thirty million, and then and then there was no retention. Uh, you know, or tickle. Right. Yep. We had one hundred seventy five million registered users to tickle because they would come and take their tests, but they would never come back. There was no real reason to come back. So. So I met them and he said, look, I'd love to have you work with us because we need to figure out the core product. And so I 
said no initially, and then he said, you know, why not? And we kept talking. We met three times, and eventually he convinced me that it was a good idea. And, and so we started working together. We started having Skype calls together while I was in Switzerland, he was in Israel. And then when he got back to the U.S. and I got back to the U.S., we started meeting at my house around my dinner table. Yeah. And the whole team would come down, and we'd Skype in the, the technology guys in Israel, and we would talk through the branding, we would talk through the language, we would talk through, uh, you know, which features to include or not include, and really look at the essence of what the product was. And we came up with another product that was very similar called Air. Mm-hmm. But I'd always said to them, look, the, the Air product does the same thing the other one did, except it's focused on friends and family, and one to many doesn't play as well with friends and family because your, your dad's going to be eating dinner. He's not going to be able to watch you. So if you're going after your 12 or 15 closest friends, the chances of them being able to watch you live are much lower. So now if we're going to do that, we need to add some asynchronous mode to it. But Ben was very, very tenacious about wanting it to be live, that the next experience that we're going to be able to provide through technology is live, be a live, uh, a live tunnel into somebody else's life uh, so that people can participate in the moment. That's, that was what he was, in essence, trying to get to. So when we crossed the streams of participatory, live, one-to-many with friends and family, it just didn't work. It was kind of anticipatable <laughs> that it wasn't going to work. But when it did work in sort of October of 2014, November 2014, Ben then came to me and he said, okay, what, what are we going to do next? And he said, look, let's simplify the crap out of it. And we said, let's build five apps in five months. Let's not build another one for another eight months because we've got maybe 16 months left of cash. Let's try to find the white hot interest around this one to many. Let's, instead of offering them the ability to distribute their stream on Facebook and Twitter and email and da 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 da, let's just pick one. Instead of trying to do just friends and family, let's do everybody, or let's do a geography-based one. And so we came up literally with five different ideas that were incredibly simple. And uh, I said, look, we need a really friendly name, a really fun, friendly name. We need a really bold color. You know, don't do two or three colors. Don't make it subtle. Don't try to put your whole soul in it. Just find out where the white-hot interest is in live streaming. And uh, they came back to me with Meerkat, and I said, yeah, that's fantastic. And then we built four more. <laughs> the apps were built? No, we designed four more. Concepts? We laid out four more. And uh, they began the process of banging these things out. And they banged out Meerkat, and they launched it on product time. And then luckily it wasn't four weeks later, because if it had launched after Periscope, it would have been received very differently right. by the market. Um, but luckily it was prior, and it hit the nerve. What happens... Now with Periscope, you know what's what's the future of Meerkat look like? What's Meerkat look like in a year or two? So years? we're gonna we're gonna figure that out. I mean, there's gonna be a lot of data we get in the next four weeks uh, over what's going on in the community. Uh, there's obviously a lot of um, uh, sort of star power that's interested in this new channel, and we're gonna start to see them come on and, and use things in various ways. Uh, so there's gonna be a lot of data analysis in the next four weeks, and then there's gonna be continually adding and subtracting to that product so that it evolves and moves with the community. And that's all you can do, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Facebook has done so brilliantly, right? It started as a college photo sharing app. And then you take something small that's working, uh, you know, and Twitter started as Ev tweeting about his sandwich for the day. And you take something small and you just keep adding to it uh, in ways that make sense 
for that community that wants to use it and for what they're using it for. And if and if you don't like how they're using it, then you got to kind of right. You know, give a new like like Snapchat did so brilliantly when they added stories, right? I mean, the the, the usage on the old Snapchat is very low. Yeah. Compared to stories at this point, I mean, it's essentially stories, a whole new product. Yeah. <clears throat> right. It was a genius. That was a genius move by them, and and that's that's all you can do with these networks, and that's what Facebook has been so good at, and so hopefully we can get Meerkat to be that good too at navigating through the product changes it needs to keep engaging people and and keep giving them something new that that they want. Interesting. We're just at the beginning of live yeah. video, right? I mean, we just have all gotten these HD cameras. We just have gotten 4G in this country. We we're just getting to the point where Moore's law is letting us do this in a pretty okay way. Yeah. I mean, as we saw at South by, it breaks down a little bit. Yeah. Last year wouldn't have been possible. This year was just barely possible. Next year it'll be it'll be quite good, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but we're just at the beginning of the live video and the live participatory media thing. And yeah. that's going to spread to professional, that's going to spread to commerce, that's going to spread, that, I mean, that's going to spread to so many things over the next five years. We're just at the beginning. Yeah. And so Meerkat's opportunity is to be one of the companies that navigates through that space as it, as it emerges, just as Facebook was in the space navigating as digital photography emerged. Yep. My first startup was live video uh, rap competitions. Nice. And we were going to go to all sorts of other competitions and collaborations. So two live videos side by side with a live audience watching, chatting. So I've I've been excited about the space for a long time, nice. and uh, I'm so that's why I'm so thrilled and I'm such an ally yeah. uh, of just the space because I I love it. Yeah. I love the medium. I love the relationships it builds. The kind of energy. You the, know. The, the living real time is a different way of living. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like when you're real time on Meerkat, you're real time on Twitter, you're real time on your, your SMS, yeah. you're out, you're, you know, it, it's like you're living two different lives. And I think that a lot of the older generation doesn't get that. And I think that for those people who haven't fully spent a week living real time through your device, you should try it. Yeah. Because it's, it's a whole different way of experiencing life. Definitely. So... Product Hunt is a networks effects business. If you were advising Product Hunt, what would you think about? What would you advise? What questions would you ask? How would you think about that? How do you think about Product Hunt the business? Um, you know, the network effect that you guys have built is around this community and people's reputation within that community. You've also built a really simple and effective retention mechanism with the emails. And although email is a bad thing, it's really not. I mean, it's it's our to-do list, really. Um, that approach is viable for lots of different verticals. And you've got a toehold with this particular type of user, and they can be moved into other verticals, or extended, not moved, but extended into other verticals. Um, and you have to think about what other network effects, what other retention tools you can start to build onto the product so that it flowers. Meaning, is there some sort of commercial, you know, sort of transactional, you know, for instance, there's a network effect of the community, mm-hmm. but there isn't a marketplace network effect yet. And I'm going to be putting out a blog in the next month or two about what the different types of network yeah. effects are. Uh, but but you can start thinking about what would be a marketplace network effect where there's actual money transacted 
and you get buyers on one side and sellers on the other. Or you could start thinking about a, a, an end-sided marketplace. We're going to be putting out a TechCrunch article about end-sided marketplaces or 360-degree marketplaces or as we're calling them, market networks. Um, you know, we think that for the last 10 years, the world has been about social networks and the next 10 years is going to be about market networks. And uh, you can think, start to take some of those network effects and those sort of product approaches and start layering it on top of this so that, you know, two years from now, this product hunt thing is transformed into something that's sort of unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, 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 think that, I think that adding verticals like games or something is a, is a good idea. Uh, to, to broaden your base for when you start building other network effect functions and products on top of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know that if you just keep doing that, it becomes as big as you want it to become. What, uh, and it's something we think a lot about too internally, what transaction uh, you know, interactions would you recommend we think about or excite you? Or I'd have to think about it. I mean, I'd really have to think about it, and I probably wouldn't want to do it on a, on a sure. podcast that's going to live on, on <laughs> yeah. the air for a long time. But, yeah, I mean, that, uh, I'm not sure yet, but I'm sure there's something. Yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some low-hanging fruit. I'm sure there's some, some reach stuff. Uh, but it comes down to building reputation. It comes down to profiles. It comes down to, um, of, of that audience, what are they looking to get? Um, but even without getting into specifics. It might yeah. not even be what is your audience looking to get. It's what are the people in your community looking to sell, hmm. right? Start with the supply side, maybe, and think about what would this community want to supply to other people, and, and could I get them money for doing that, either services or products or, you know, something. Yeah. There's something in there. There's something in there already, and, and, and the broader the base gets, the more opportunity you're going to have for that, I think. You know, and then, then there's other types of, of network effects, which, um, you know, which are not necessarily marketplace network effects, but there's branding effects and there's, there's other things that you can start to look at to, mm -hmm. to broaden that out. You go down the list. I mean, there's, we make lists and then we yeah. drop down them and say, oh yeah, number six, you know. Right. Let's try that one. And then how do you prioritize? Which one? Uh, we typically have a, a dashboard where we... Um, we look at how hard is it to try? How fast can we try it? Yeah. Is it clear what the data would be if we tried it, that we would prove that it's working or not? And then if it worked, how valuable would it be? And you just, and you just literally have a, a, a calculation as to which one gets prioritized. And then all of us as a team get together and we talk it through for an hour or 90 minutes, no more. And through our discussions, we move the numbers and then it becomes clear what we think the next priority is. And then we go do that and then a week later we get back together and do it again. What does NFX look like in five years? Uh, our class size will probably be 30 companies at a time. Uh, and we'll have a really robust uh, alumni network. And, we're gonna, and our NFX conferences are going to just be big carnivals and celebrations of, of innovation and uh, viral growth and, and network effect businesses. I mean, it's just it's going to be a carnival. It's going to be so fun. People are going to be hugging. Uh, at, at FX Conf, you know, every six months. That's awesome. People are, it's going to be a not, you're not going to want to miss it. You're not going to want to miss that event. Like, you will clear your schedule for that. And we've, you know, we've talked a bit about events and, and you've been to, you've been to all of them. Yeah. Um, as you think about what types of events you want to throw or have been throwing, what, what, 
what do you take from the different types of events or, or what's new? Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the best event I've ever been to is David Hornick's Lobby in Hawaii that he's been mm-hmm. doing now for eight years. Um, I don't know if he invented the unconference, but I think he did. I think a lot of people give him credit for, for, for inventing that, and I certainly do. And the idea is that there's no agenda and there's no speakers. What happens is before the, the, the gathering, the people who are coming offer up to lead discussions on topics they're interested in and know something about. Mm-hmm. And then everyone has a choice as to which topics they want to go uh, sit in on. And then uh, the person leads or the two or three people lead the discussion. And, and mostly you're trying to get everybody else to talk about some topic. And uh, there's a combination of very tactical business things as well as personal stuff. Like what's the balance between family and work? You know, mm-hmm. That's always a topic that you should revisit every you know, right. year or two if you have a family. Or what's the balance between personal life and work? You know, if you're not married and you're trying to date or you know, right. trying to maintain that relationship with that guy or that girl that's so hard when you're working all the time. So there's a combination where you're opening up. I mean, what Hornick does is he allows, at the lobby, he allows us to open up as people, not just as business units. Right. You know, you know me- mechanical business, yeah. we're here to make money. Yeah. That's true. We all want to make money. We all want to, but, but we're there to make a dent in the world and we're there to, to, to have this sort of, you know, flowering as humans. Um, that's why we. That's why we dare. That's right. why we risk. Is to is to create something better for ourselves and for for the people around us. And and not forgetting that is important to make these events real. So you do see a lot of hugging. You do see a lot of people really just hanging out and letting down. And um, those sorts of events, I think, are the most valuable because it's in that in that context that you're going to share something you're really thinking about with somebody, and that's going to really help them. Mm-hmm. You're not just glossing over it. Like if you go to D which I found to be the worst of all the conferences. Um, it's all these CEOs, these famous, Rupert Murdoch will speak, and Bill Gates will speak, and Steve Jobs would speak, and blah, blah, blah. But they can't say anything. They're heads of public companies. Right. They're very restricted in what they can say and do. And so it was all this the same stuff you read in the, in the Wall Street Journal. Right. And everyone would just congratulate themselves for sitting next to Steve Jobs. Yeah. And it's, it's boring. Yeah. That's, that's something I think about a lot, actually, is... Uh, when you have a, a name or, a brand, or you represent people, you, you kind of lose the ability to be a person in some in some ways. That's right. And if you're and if you're and if you're busy being a killer and crushing it, then who are you gonna let your hair down with? Right. Other killers. Yeah. Right. Other other product obsessionals. I mean, that's that's the group of people we're looking for. The people who are literally obsessed with product. Mm-hmm. They're obsessed with the emotions people feel when they're using their product. They're they're obsessed with the value people are getting out of the product and how they perceive it and what the language is they use. Those people who live at that level, those are the people we want to work with. And when you meet them, you just can't get enough of them because there's so few of us who are thinking this way. Right. Right? There's, there's thousands of us out of millions of people, and there's hundreds of us in this general area, but it's the densest in the world. And when you meet them, you just can't get enough of them. And that, those are the people we're trying to bring together at NFX as product obsessionals. As a, as a bit of a closing or leading into a closing, what would you tell yourself... And what would you be doing as a in today's world as a fresh face, you know, twenty two year old graduate? I would be joining a uh, forty to one hundred twenty person company in Silicon Valley um, that had uh, a network effect business. Mm-hmm. Why that as opposed to starting something? Or I think that <clears throat> um, I made a mistake in my career, which was 
after I was in venture capital, I went and immediately started a company. Now I had to because my head was going to explode right. if I didn't do it. But but after I sold that company and I made you know more money than than anybody needs, uh, that's my judgment about what people right. need. It's you know, <clears throat> um, uh, I probably should have gone and taken a job at Facebook. I probably should have taken a job at Twitter. I, should, I probably should have taken a job at another network effect company because there's so much to learn. And the brand you get by working with one of the bigger companies is very important. You know, I've I've been I've I've run I've started and run four venture backed successful venture backed companies, but I'm not a household name. And when I walk into a room, it's not like oh that guy was the so and so at Facebook, therefore he's cool, right? Having a brand like that really helps you navigate this world. Yeah. And uh, and so I would I would encourage a 22 year old to go get that brand because your your Carnegie Mellon brand will last you until you're 26 or 28. Yeah. But your Twitter brand will last you until you're 34. And and getting a brand is useful. Number one. Number two, you're going to learn a lot from those people. They have done the hard work of recruiting and hiring the most amazing people. Yeah. They have really high bars at at, at Facebook and Twitter and these these companies. And as you as a CEO, you have to have that high bar yourself, but you have to do all the heavy lifting to surround yourselves with people you love. Right. Right. If you go to one of these companies, they've done all that work for you. So you can hit the ground running. These people will be your friends for 30, 40 years. Yeah. For you to go out and hire the best of the best is going to be really hard at 22. It's possible. And, and, and if you have something in your head that you can't not do, then do it. And right. Come to NFX. I'll help yeah. you do it. I want you to do it. But if you don't have that idea, I would join one of these companies and make friends, learn from someone, watch someone's management style, find out what you're really good at. Are you a good manager? Are you a good strategist? Are you a good product designer? Are you a good engineer? Are you, what are you best at? And finding that out on somebody else's dime, finding that out surrounded by people yeah. who are going to be as good or better than you is going to teach you faster and give you more skills for the next phase of maybe starting your own. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you one thing, you'll probably earn more money joining one of these companies than you will starting your own. Mm-hmm. You only start your own when your head is going to explode if you don't do it. Because weight adjusted, you will make more money getting 0.01% of an already successful company than by getting 100% of your company and then getting your, your co-founder 50 and then giving the venture guys another 50 and then before yep. you know it, you're down to 9%. and. That's cool, but you know your exit was twenty-two million, and nine percent of twenty-two million is enough to put a down payment on the house in San Francisco. It's great, it's amazing, you're a success, but it's not getting point one percent or right. something big. So that would be my advice. And let's also talk about personal brand for a second, because it's interesting with guys like us who you know, clearly don't care about you know some elements of it. Like at the same time. Uh, we also recognize that uh, you know brand helps you do the things that you want to do. You know you want to work with CEOs and not have to convince them. Man, you know they want to already know who you are, and a lot of them do. But right. uh, so, how do you think about uh, that for yourself? I think it's I think it's incredibly important. I, I I've ignored branding all my life. Right, I, I come from New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. You know, we just chop wood and we just do the shit, and then <laughs> we don't market the shit. Yeah. Much, right, we don't promote. We don't. Yeah. Uh, that's not what we do. Uh, so I, I come from a culture that, that is non-promotional. And, and uh, it wasn't until the last five or six years that I realized that I had underemphasized that. I think you do need to have an easy way. You need to give the gift to the people around you of an easy way 
to understand and communicate their respect for you to right. others. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have lots of people that I've worked with that say, James is the best guy I've ever worked with. But then people say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's, you know, it, it's hard to explain yeah. sometimes. And so I can give them a gift by making it easy for them to communicate to their friends what, what they feel. And um, I, I, I used to see it as, uh, I used to see the branding issue and this sort of prominence issue within the community as um, a secondary order thing, but increasingly I'm seeing it as very important. And if you look at the, you know, the last 10 years, if you look at the fast rising venture people, they're all writers. Yeah. Right? Whether it's Schuster down in LA or whether it's Paul Graham or whether it's Mark Andreessen or anybody who's sort of come out of nowhere in the last 10 years in the venture world is a writer mm-hmm. because they're promoting their, they're promoting themselves. Does podcasting count? Podcasting counts. Cool. <laughs> Um, sweet. So, you, you know, you're starting NFX. That's, yeah. that's a brandable, you know, that's going to be. Yeah, that, it, that's going to be my brand. Yeah. Is NFX. That's going to be my trap. Yeah. And so how can people learn more about NFX? How can they, can people apply to NFX? What can, uh, which, are the, which are the listeners and communities stay tuned for? Yeah. So NFX stands for Network Effects because we're just focused on Network Effect businesses. And now you go to NFX.com uh, and all the information's there. It's a invitation-only type of an application process. So with Y Combinator, they have 3,000 applicants and they pick 120. With us, we're going to hopefully have no more than 100 applicants. Uh, they're all screened by the people we, we respect and know. Um, and, uh, and we'll take 10 or 20. And this, this class will probably take 10 or 12. In the future, we'll take somewhere between 10 and 30. Awesome. And, um, and, if, you, and if you want to apply, then, then find somebody who knows us and convince them that it's worth getting a code. And, and then we'd love to talk to you. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on. This has been a lot of great information. And uh, we'll look forward to everything you and NFX are, uh, have upcoming.